Well, in the providence of God, I can't think of two more appropriate songs for the week that we've had and for the sermon that I'll be sharing with you today. Why don't we begin with a word of prayer? Father, we do give you thanks for the identity that you have given us in Christ as we sang about in the first song and for the hope that we have in Christ that we sang about in the second song. It is true. In the midst of the storm, you are Lord of all. And so we rest, Father, we rest now as we prepare to hear from your word. Speak your word through my very inadequate and feeble lips. I ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, uh, this week we are beginning a new year of messages addressing all sorts of different topics. And the first topic we're going to be discussing this week and really over the next four Sundays is what it means to be Christians that are, to quote Jesus or paraphrase Jesus, in the world but not of the world. What does it look like to live that way? If you're a Christian watching this message right now, I have to believe that you have felt the tension of that reality many times in your life. I have to imagine that you felt that tension this week. Have you sensed that there are any number of areas in life, any number of doctrines we confess as Christians that, well, or ethical positions that we espouse that, that are controversial, that are mm, troubling? I mean, just to give a very practical example, a very uh, realistic example, I mean, we confess that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father, is the only way to heaven. And we confess that in an extremely pluralistic society and culture that finds any ideas or exclusive claims to be very distasteful, bordering on intolerant, although obviously we do not agree with that and we extol tolerance. But nevertheless, that is what is assumed by making exclusive claims, that if you say this is true, that inherently means all the other things aren't true, and therefore you're building fences. Or take this one. Christianity insists that ultimately the most appropriate sexual behavior is to happen in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. Well, that, I mean, in that's not just this age, that's every age, but especially this age right now, that finds any idea of monogamy to be quite controversial and old-fashioned. Do you, do you sense the tension? In fact, do you feel the inherent disconnect internally as you confess certain truths to be true, and yet... Your life doesn't match up with your confession? Because that is true for all of us. 
We believe it's wrong to do certain things and right to do other things, and yet by the way we think or by the way we speak or by the way we act, we find ourselves falling short of our own standards all the time. That's the tension. It's not just out there, it's in here. What does it look like to live with that tension? What does it look like to be resident aliens? Well, with that said, I want to bring you to our passage today. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 12. And I think it will begin to answer some of the questions that we've posed already this morning. Peter writes this, Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones and are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, and a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, there's that concept, sojourners and exiles, those who aren't in their true and better home, I urge you, abstain from the passion, passions of the flesh, wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. End of reading. So, What can we glean from this text? How can we live in the tension of being resident aliens, exiles in the world? Well, first of all, Peter is going to point us to, right in the beginning, in verse 2 and 3, that we need to be fed by God's word. Peter says, long for pure spiritual milk, long for it. Now, Now, at first glance, we may wonder what is meant by such a phrase, but if we go back to the Greek language here, which... I'm not always real fond of doing in a sermon, but in this case, it's helpful. We find that the word that is translated spiritual here has the same root as the word Peter uses in the previous chapter in verse 23 for, quote, the word, referencing the word of God. Therefore, what what Peter is telling these sojourners, these exiles, these resident alien Christians of his is that in order to live in the inevitable tension of being in the world and not of the world, they need to have a steady diet of God's word preached to them and read to them. And it's not just to get 
right information about God. No, the word goes deeper than that. The word is not just a guidebook. It's not just something that gives us data. No, the word is living and active and has the power to create and sustain faith. And so apart from it, it is sort of like being apart from food for your physical body. You will get sick. You will be unhealthy if you're not fed. Now, this is really important because the fact is, folks, we are fed a whole slew of other words every day in our lives. Our media is preaching sermons to us. Our commercials are preaching sermons to us. Our films are preaching sermons to us. Our music is preaching sermons to us. You might not have thought of it that way, but they contain messages. And the more we imbibe and the less we are fed by the word, the more the words that we're hearing from all the other sources take over our thoughts and actions. It happens unwittingly. It happens unconsciously. We are deeply influenced by the mediums that we consume. Now, I think you know this, but in case, I'll just give the disclaimer, I'm not an anti-pop culture guy. I'm not. This isn't, like, don't worry, I'm not going there. I'm not like, have you, how much TV have you watched? Especially in lockdown time, I'm like, yeah, everybody's watching more TV. Yeah, Netflix, I'm not done watching. Let me, go, leave, it, leave me alone. So I get it. I, I'm not, this isn't an anti-pop culture thing. What this is, though, is a recognition that we need the word to guide our thinking as we come across these words. We need the word to be the primary word that all other things are filtered through. The only way that happens is if we're fed it consistently. I've come across any number of people that have learned to believe wrong words about their life, wrong messages about their life. And, and, and a lot of the time, it's actually messages that, that harm them terribly, that go on to stick with them for a long time. You know, one of the phrases that I absolutely cannot stand in life is the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. Bunk! Anybody who has actually had to deal with abusive words, especially when they were children, no, that stuff doesn't go away. That stuff scars the inside of you. And it can come up at any time when pushed. No, the words we consume, they impact us heavily, folks. For example, back in the day before I was a pastor, I was a shuttle bus driver for a hotel, a little, little hotel in Ontario, California. And what that meant is I would spend my days picking up and dropping off guests and, you know, at various places. Inevitably, most of the time, lighthearted conversations would ensue. We'd, you know, like, how was your trip? How was your flight? Good to hear. You know, all the short little talk stuff. But occasionally, occasionally, I would have people get in the, the bus that were just ripe for real conversation. It just happened. And I remember picking up this one guy one time. He got in the, the bus, and he was the only one in, and he sat in the very back. And he was sort of, sort of off in the corner. I could barely see him in the rearview mirror. It was a strange set of events that didn't usually happen. And I asked him how he was doing, and he kind of mumbled and didn't say much. And then I looked in the rearview mirror again just a few moments later, 
and I see him sort of shaking, like he's trembling, and I realize he's, he's weeping. Like he's weeping in the back corner. And so I say, are, are, are you okay, buddy? Or is there anything I can do to help you? And, and he didn't know what I was into. He didn't know that I was planning on being a pastor one day, but he said, I'm afraid I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and I can't be saved. Well, it turns out I knew a thing or two about theology. It turns out I knew a thing or two about the Bible. And it turns out that I had studied that very concept and that very question. And so I began asking him questions, and I began pursuing with him where he heard this. And he had heard this from some, you know, wackadoodle preacher, and the preacher had basically told him that he was condemned to hell and there was nothing he could do to change it. And so I just asked him, look, tell me something. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the one who has died to forgive you of your sins? And he said, of course I do. And I said, well, then you haven't committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You're going to heaven. That's, that is what is necessary to go to heaven. I don't care what that old preacher told you. He's wrong. And I'll show you. And I quoted to him some verses in Scripture that declared that. And I'm telling you, by the end of the conversation, his tears were gone and the burden was lifted. But see, he, had, he didn't know. He was fed a word that was false. And yet what, what brought him back to life? What brought him a sense of peace? What's, what brought his faith up? was having a true and better word proclaimed to him. We need to be fed by the word if we're going to live out this life in the tension that inevitably comes our way. Second, if we would live out our days as resident aliens, very related to what I've just talked about, well, we better, we better be deeply anchored in our identity. We better be really secure in that identity. Uh, that's what Peter appeals to over and over again in our text. Uh, just look at verses 9 and 10, for example. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you hear how much Peter tells them and proclaims to them what they actually are. Just like we sang in the first song today. I, I am a child of God. Now why is this so crucial? Because when we lose sight of who God says we are in Christ, we can way too easily fall into all sorts of false identities. For example, when we sin, if we're not anchored in the reality that we are declared to be forgiven sinners by Christ, we can, we can start to believe that we're not very forgiven at all. We can start to doubt. If we miss that we are chosen by God in the midst of a world that will reject us from time to time in some way or another, we might start to believe the rejection more than the reality that we're chosen when we forget that we're a holy nation as God's church, we can all too easily divide over far lesser things and give into forms of tribalism. When we lose sight of the fact that God says that we are a royal priesthood, 
This, I mean, it doesn't get more important in language than that. We can start to easily believe that what we do in this life isn't all that important anyway. After all, what most of us do doesn't look very royal or priestly. When we're doing things like, you know, changing diapers or doing homework with the kids or typing away on a laptop for work, the word royal or priestly doesn't come to mind. And yet the fact is, Peter says, no, no, no. That is, in fact, who you are in Christ. When my kids were really little, I used to lay down with them and read a book to them, you know, before they were going to bed. And, um, and then after talking a little bit, we developed this nighttime routine. After it was time, when it was time for them to actually go asleep and I was going to leave the room, I would lean over each of my kids and I would do the sign of the cross on their forehead with my index finger and I would say, you are a baptized child of God. And then they would respond, Daddy, you are a baptized child of God. Why would I do that? Because the most fundamental thing that we need, that my kids need, is to know who they really are from morning till night. They're baptized children of God, and so are you. And when we are more anchored in our identity in Christ, when we, when we are set there, well, then it is more likely that we will end up being steadfast in fighting the flesh as resident aliens in this world. That's the third element of what Peter says we need to do in order to live in this tension. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The juxtaposition of this verse could not be more perfect for our theme. If you remember, on the one hand, Peter, right before this verse, says, you are, you are, you are. And yet at the same time, right after, he says, you are also sojourners and exiles. You are also, so there's the tension. You're a holy nation, but you're in exile? Resident aliens. We might feel that reality the most when it comes to this imperative to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our soul. As easy as it is to emphasize the discomfort we might feel with what, quote, they out there are doing that is different than what we think they ought to be doing, which, side note, the church is really good at telling everybody else what they need to not do, and we just need to really focus on our own house a lot more. But I digress. It's, it's easy to criticize them. But judgment begins in the house of God. We need to recognize that the problem isn't out there. The problem is also in here. 
You'll never feel more like a sojourner, more, more like an exile than when you think about the ways that you fall short of your own standards. I have to tell you, I'm, I'm never really surprised when a Christian leader of, you know, quite popular standing falls into some heinous sin. I'm not. And it's not because I'm cynical. I'm not. It's just because I am all too aware of how easy it is for the devil to lay his subtle traps and cause anyone to fall. Peter says, Peter says it's a battle. You see what I'm saying? That was a battle. That was a shot taken at me right now with that sound system. But Peter says it's a battle, it's a war, it's an ongoing war that we're fighting. All it takes is a few little compromises here and a few rationalizations there, and boom, suddenly you're caught and ensnared. And that's true for every Christian, in fact. It's not just leaders that are subject to this, it's every one of us. We can all fall short, we all will fall short. C.S. Lewis once said, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Indeed, that's the tension of being a resident alien, and yet, fight we must against these passions of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you say, but Eric, what happens if if I lose the battles with addiction or my temptations with my pride and my idolatry? And the first thing I say to you, it's not if, but when. You will, there will be, you will fall short. Because we are in these bodies of death, as Paul calls it. We're going to fall short in big and small ways all the time. Well, then what are you saying here? Well, what I'm saying is, again, that's why you need to be anchored deeply in your truest identity. You are a recipient of mercy, Peter says. You have been forgiven, Peter says. So when you lose, when you fail, when, when, you, when you don't measure up, repent and go back to the source of your identity every single day and get up to fight another day. As the Apostle John says to the church, to believers, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that leads to my last point. Because that is true, because he's continually cleansing us from our unrighteousness as we seek to fight the flesh, we need to be confident that God is going to use us as resident aliens in this world. We need to be confident that what we do actually matters. That's really what the passage says at the very end. That's Peter's focus. He says, you know, make sure your conduct among the Gentiles, another way of saying unbelievers or outsiders, is honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If I could just summarize this, what what is being said is seek to live good lives so that when people see your good lives, they would recognize God is in your midst. Or more, more appropriately, when others would say, oh, that guy is, that guy's terrible, the people that really know you, even if they're not Christians, would say, no, 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 I know that guy and he wouldn't do that. Frankly, 
The way this looks, most of the time, is not very flashy to live honorable lives. It's stuff like being a faithful spouse, trying to be a decent parent, being an employee that tries to do good work with integrity, means being trustworthy, being a good friend. It's the kind of stuff that Peter says. If someone were to try and slander you, the people around you would go, no, 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 no. And somehow, God will use that. You remember what Jesus says, we're like a city on a hill, a light that shines, and, and people, will, when they see our good works, they'll glorify our God in heaven. It's the same type theme here. Louis Palau tells a story about Chuck Colson after having gone on a long speaking tour um, around various Asian countries, finally pulling into his last stop at a Thailand airport and just being absolutely exhausted. And yet, there was a huge line and it was very hot and there was all sorts of problems and it took hours for him to get through customs and to get on his plane. And I mean, it, you know, everybody in the line was getting really frustrated and impatient, but Chuck didn't. Chuck just stayed the course and was cool, calm, and collected. And some years later, Chuck got a letter from a man who was in the airport that day and had recognized him as being the writer of a book that his daughter gave him called Born Again. And this man, recognizing him as the writer of that book all about Christianity, watched him the whole time to see if he cracked. And he didn't. And the man was so impressed by that that he decided to give the book a read and eventually became a Christian himself. Now you say, man, that's awesome. That's what I want to live like too. But, but <laughs> what if I don't react patiently like old Chuck did? What if I blow my lid with my kids? What if I lose my temper or say something I shouldn't or something I regret? Well, folks, Part of what it means to live honorably also is to be big enough to admit when we have messed up to others, to apologize when we haven't lived up to our own standards. The fact is, I've seen God use stories of failure in our lives almost, if not more so, more than our successes to bring glory to his name. That's not an encouragement to fail. That's just a recognition of the goodness of God. That he can use us in spite of our shortcomings and frankly does so all the time. We need to remember that in the final analysis, the message we're pushing is not become a Christian and be good like me. The message we're pushing to the world is become a Christian and be forgiven like me. So, as we go out to the world as resident aliens, aliens with that message, you can be confident that God will work to cause our friends and neighbors to want to join us in this life as fellow sojourners on the road to our true and better home. Let's pray. Father, I ask right now that you would indeed help us to live in the tension that is there and help us to trust you every step of the way. Let us be fed by the word, be anchored in our identity, be steadfast in fighting the flesh, and be confident that you will use us no matter where we're at. And now, Father, we pray the prayer that our Savior gave us with, 
one voice saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.